Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach. Our theme this year on Bookends is leadership, and today we will visit with Daniel Tobin, who has written Feeding Your Leadership Pipeline, How to Develop the Next Generation of Leaders in Small and Mid-Sized Companies. To obtain a copy of today's featured book, please visit www.nextgenerationofleaders.com. You can access today's podcast and all of our Bookends programs on iTunes. You can also visit bookendsbookclub.net where you can listen to this interview and check out our resource blog for free chapters and other resources provided by authors featured on this program. After reading Dan's book, you might want to discuss it, and we've created a place for you to do this. Simply sign into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. In this LinkedIn group, you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our bookends featured authors who are members of the group. Be sure to invite your friends to join this group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and my guest today, Dan Tobin, is a consultant on corporate learning strategies and leadership development programs and a coach to corporate training directors. With more than 30 years' experience in the learning and development field, he has founded two corporate universities and served as Vice President of Design and Development at the American Management Association, given keynotes and workshops on five continents, and written six books on corporate learning strategies. His latest book, Feeding Your Leadership Pipeline, How to Develop the Next Generation of Leaders in Small to Mid-Sized Companies, was co-published by ASTD and Barrett Kohler several months ago. Dan can be reached at danieltobin at att.net. You can visit his personal website, www.tobincls, that's T-O-B-I-N-C-L-S.com, or visit the website for his newest book at www.nextgenerationofleaders.com where you will find a video of Dan discussing his ideas and you can also download a free chapter from this book. Dan Tobin, welcome to Bookends. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Dan, in the introduction of your book, you share a story of being hired to create a leadership development program for a small company. And then after you're hired and you come on board, the initiative ends up getting stalled for 18 months before you are given the green light to proceed. Do you feel that it is more difficult for companies today, many who have been downsized to put the time and the energy into a leadership development process? Um, and is, is chartering a leadership development program still an important area for organizations to be putting emphasis and resources given our current economy? Well, the economy certainly poses a challenge uh, to find resources, but there are ways of doing it, I won't say on the cheap, but for, excuse me, for a reasonable price. Um, if you just look at the demographics today um, and the tens of millions of baby boomers who are going to be eligible to retire in the next few years, there's a real mandate to develop that next generation of leaders to take their place. And that's happening in both large and small companies. A key reason to create a leadership development program is to develop your high potentials and help them prepare for bigger, more expanded roles in the organization. One tool you discuss in the book is the 360-degree assessment. 
Do you feel the 360 degree assessment is the best way to identify these candidates? And if, if so, um, what should organizations be assessing and what other information might they um, consider important? Well, really in the book, the, the 360 evaluation uh, is recommended to be done on the participants of the LDP, not as a screening device to get into the LDP. Mm -hmm. Really, most organizations use what's called a uh, performance potential matrix, where they're looking for people who are already performing well in the jobs they have today, but then also are demonstrating some potential for future leadership roles. Now, ways that people demonstrate this um, is you know, showing curiosity about the larger organization. How does their work fit into the, the larger systems and the larger methods of the company? Uh, people who are, you know, helping other people grow. Um, what I found is that if you sit down with the business unit heads and their HR business partners, they pretty much know who the high potentials are. So th these are these are things that just are easily observable within the environment um, that uh, these organizations should be well aware of in as they um, as they look at these potential candidates. Absolutely. Okay. In our work, we occasionally encounter some pushback uh, on the use of 360 feedback. Uh, you know, even when it's it's, and we would agree with you, Dan. By the way, that I don't think it's a screening device for uh, such a, pro, a process, but certainly a component of such a process. But even so, sometimes there is some pushback on the use of 360 feedback, um, although it you know certainly is a tool that provides a window into how others perceive us. Um, that I believe is really difficult to obtain any other way. Um, you, in fact, share an amusing story in your book about a particular executive who got really carried away in trying to create the perfect 360 assessment. Um, I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about this. Would you share it with us? Sure. Um, it was the same company where I'd been brought in to, to start the leadership development program that had gotten postponed for 18 months. And my first day on the job, I met with my boss, who was the senior vice president of human resources, and she handed me a 360 instrument, telling me that uh, they had created this instrument two years earlier, working with an external consultant. And what she had wanted to do at that time was to do 360s of the top 150 people in the company. But for two years, the CEO and founder of the company had been resisting. So she asked me to go sit down with him, figure out what his problem was, and get the thing started. So later that day, I went to see Larry, who was the CEO. He was a former engineering professor who had developed some tools and, and applications while, while he was a professor, and had started this company, and he'd been running the company for 20 years. And when I went to see him, he said, well, have you seen all of the emails I wrote on this? And I said, no. He said, well, let me send you the emails, and uh, you read them, think about them, come back tomorrow, and we'll talk about this. So by the time I got back to my office, there was a string of 17 emails written over the 
previous two years. So, you know, Larry was an engineering professor, and what he was trying to do was to come up with a perfect formula. So every one of these had suggestions, such as uh, if somebody exceeded their goals by 50%, we should give them an extra 0.14 as on their score. And if they exceeded by 100%, maybe we should give them 0.18. Um, and if they uh, had been with the company for more than 10 years, we should give them an extra 0.08. And there were about 30 of these suggestions within these 17 emails, all on ways to tweak the score that would come out of the, the uh, 360. Oh, my goodness. So I went back to see him the next day, and... Uh, you know, he said, did you read all my emails? I said, yes. He said, well, what do you think? And I said, Larry, I said, they're, they're all good suggestions. Said, but the thing you, you, you have to remember is that the numbers don't matter. And this is an engineering professor. He looked at me with a shocked <laughs> look at his face. He says, what do you mean the numbers don't matter? <laughs> so I said, Larry, I said, let's say that we, we find the perfect formula. We take all of your suggestions. And after we've done all the 360s and made all of the adjustments, we have a rank-ordered list of the top 150 people in the company. Tomorrow, for whatever reason, one of your direct reports leaves the company. Mm. You're going to look at the list and say, let's see, the top person has a weighted score of 4.24, and the next person has a weighted score of 4.21, so 4.24 gets the job. And he said, of course not. He says, there's a lot more that goes into it than that. I said, that's the point, Larry. The, yeah. the, the 360 is a guide to see people's strengths and weaknesses, but it has to be much more of it goes into a decision as to who's going to get promoted. The numbers really don't matter. And you can see the light bulb go off in his head. He said, okay, go do it. Oh, my goodness. I just love that story. And it's, you know, hard to imagine, um, you know, people who had been in the role before you. You handled it beautifully. Um, I would imagine a lot of people were pretty intimidated by this guy and his, um, you know, his um, need to create this, this perfect process. Well, there is no perfect process. You know, mm -hmm. maybe in engineering there is, but not in dealing with with people. Yeah, I would agree. Well, well, through the early stages of the leadership development process, um, we're gathering a variety of information that results in identifying these high potential individuals you've been talking about that could potentially be candidates for succession planning in the organization. What are the pros and cons of telling these individuals that they've been identified this way? And what are your personal recommendations regarding sharing this kind of information? Well, there, there are both pros and cons. I mean, the pros are that um, it helps retain people. Mm -hmm. If you tell them that you, they've been identified as a, a high potential and that we're going to put you through this leadership development process, and if you do well, it, it, you know, it has, will have a positive effect on your future with the company. I mean, we've had people, I remember the first time I ran one of these programs, out of a group of 30-plus of people in the, in the program, at least half a dozen of them came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I've been thinking about leaving. I had my resume out on the street. 
But if the company's going to invest in my future here, I'm going to stick around. And in fact, in, in one of the programs, we started off with 36 people, and at the end of the two-year program, we still had 35 in the company. That's great. Which is a you know a very good retention statistic. Yeah. Now the other uh, the, the the argument against telling people is that you know some people may get a, a an inflated ego, you know, and think that they've been been um, uh, knighted and can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I I tend to say let's tell people. But at the same time, what we did in these programs is we said to people, okay, you've been identified as a high potential candidate for future leadership roles, and we want to put you into this two-year program. First of all, being part of the program is not a guarantee that you'll ever get promoted, okay? Your promotion is going to be based on how well you do your current job, how well you do in the program, and the availability of openings. Yeah. You know, not everybody is going to, to succeed through the whole program, and not everybody is going to have a place to go at the end of the program. So yeah. I think if you give them a, a sense of reality, it's fine to tell them. In mm-hmm. fact, I think it's a, a, a good retention tool. How about, you know, when you think of others, and I agree with you, I think it prob- there's probably more reasons to tell people than to not tell them. What about people who are, are not selected and perhaps are the peers or working currently at the same level, you know, as other individuals, but they're not selected? Is, um, you know, is there um, any impact or any way to um, help people through the impact that may be, you know, negative? Well, it's really up to, you know, the the HR and the person's direct boss to sit down and talk with the person. Mm -hmm. Say, you know, we recognize that you're a valuable employee. We have a limited number of spaces in this program. And uh, unfortunately, you didn't get selected. You know, but if we run the program again, you know, here are the things you can do to, to make yourself uh, a, a good candidate for the next running of the program. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. It becomes an opportunity to give people some performance goals or, you know, some some ways to demonstrate some positive behavior um, that maybe they've not uh, been demonstrating. Right. Mm-hmm. Good. When people think of developing leadership skills, they mostly think about progressing up the leadership ladder um, in the organization. For some folks that are really highly technical, uh, technically skilled folks, um, a formal leadership role might not be a good fit all the time, or there might even be a lack of interest. Uh, You present another really great track, and quite frankly, Dan, I wanted to tell you this is the the first time that I've seen this idea um, presented uh, and I really liked it. Um, it. But this track would be, you know, really good for for really high-performing individuals who are highly technical and not interested necessarily in a traditional leadership track. Could you tell us a little bit about this and how it would work? Sure. In a, in a number of companies I've worked for, uh, along with what they call the management career ladder, uh, where you progress up the ladder to higher and higher uh, you know, from a from a manager of individual contributors to a manager of 
managers to a business unit manager to a you know a group manager to a to a C level officer. Um, they've created a parallel, what they call a technical ladder. And what the technical ladder is for is for people who are the, the ones who just love and live on the technology. And they're still very valuable members of the organization. But what they do is they create a set of parallel, a, a, a set of job descriptions and titles that parallel the management track. So somebody, instead of being a director, might be a corporate consultant, corporate consulting engineer, or a corporate consulting uh, accountant, or a corporate consulting marketing person. Okay? Mm -hmm. And with the promotion to that level, they would get the added perks that would go normally with somebody who went up a rung on the on the management ladder in terms of uh, salary increases, uh, in terms of uh, stock options and other kinds of perks. But it allows them to really focus on the whatever their technology is. And it doesn't have to be just engineering or manufacturing technology. It could be service people, it could be marketing people, it could be accounting and finance people, it could be salespeople. You know, you, you may have the world's greatest salesman in the company, but he never wants to become a sales manager. Yeah. And what they do is they create a, a set of qualifications for each of these levels. So if it was an engineering track, the qualifications might include you know, how many patents have you, have you gotten for the company? Mm -hmm. uh, how many articles have you had, had published in the, the engineering or scientific journals? Um, how many presentations have you made to, to industry conferences? And those kinds of things. And while you're not going to be a manager, you're going to be expected to be a mentor, Mm -hmm. and the coach to more junior people within your specialty. Yeah. I really like the whole idea of this and the fact that it, you know, not only, um, you know, rewarded people who really, really, truly were exceptional but really did not desire to be in a leadership kind of a traditional leadership kind of role, but also, um, you know, in the way that you're talking about it in your book, uh, you know, that it really demonstrates they're not just an exceptional salesperson, an exceptional marketer, whatever it might be, um, or an exceptional, uh, highly technical person uh, in the organization, but they're still performing in some way above and beyond. Because in, in many organizations today, you know, people who are in leadership roles still are also individual contributors. And the, the, the aspect of leadership is the of, above and beyond for them. It's what they're giving to that role. So for these folks, you've come up with some ways that, uh, the way you're talking about it in the book, that they're still giving above and beyond. They're still that exceptional performer, but they're, they're you know, giving the organization something else, something extra. And I, I, really, I really like that. Well, it, it, it's interesting. It, there seems to be a huge amount of interest in this. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Just from, you know, I wrote a short article uh, uh, that I put on my website and I put on uh, easy articles. 
And I get more hits on my hmm. website for that article than I do for the book. Wow. Um, and the easing, I, I've got like 10 articles on this easing articles website. And the, the one on uh, technical versus management career track gets uh, 10 to 15 times the number of hits of any of the others. Interesting. Yeah, so there are a lot of people out there who are interested in this concept. That's a great, great idea, and uh, I, I like the way that you approached it. Um, very well done. Can, can you give us a, a brief overview of the components of your leadership development model and the stages of learning that a person is progressing through uh, as they're involved in this developmental process? Sure. Let me start off with the stages of learning. It's a, it's a fairly well-known model, and I, I don't know exactly who put it together first, uh, but I think my way of explaining it is a little different from others. Uh, there are four stages of learning. Uh, stage one is, in, is data. And data, we're all inundated with data. Every, you know, everything we read, everything we listen to, every email we get, every website we look at, um, it's all data. We're all being drowned in it. Peter Drucker said that when you take data and you give it relevance and you give it purpose, it becomes information. And that's stage two of the model. So we're using some kind of filters to figure out what's relevant to us, what is purposeful for us, and sort of filtering out all that data so we get information that, that we need. To take information and transform it into knowledge, which is the third stage of the model, you need to apply it to your work. You can't say you really know something until you used it. You know, for example, riding a bicycle. You can read articles about riding a bicycle, you can watch other people, you can watch instructional videos, but you can't say you know how to ride a bicycle until you get out on one and start riding. So when you take information and you apply it to your work, it becomes your personal knowledge. That's stage three. And then stage four is that most precious commodity we call wisdom. And wisdom comes from using something in your work and adding your, from your experience, your reflection on that experience, your um, uh, intuition, mm-hmm. um, the, the kinds of things that, you know, are unique to yourself. It's something that you develop yourself. Wisdom can't be taught in a classroom or in an e-learning program, but it can be transmitted through dialogue and demonstration. Okay, so those are the four stages. Stage one is data. Stage two is information. Stage three is knowledge. Stage four is wisdom. Now, the model for the LDP, the Learning Leadership Development Program, has four components. The real core of it is a combination of formal education sessions where we bring together people, uh, in my model, once a quarter, 
ideally over two years. It can be done with like five sessions over one year, um, up to eight sessions over two years. And we actually bring them together in a, in a classroom or a conference center, um, and we give them instruction. And the instruction has to, do, has to do with three areas. One is, yes, leadership skills, okay? But also we want to spend some time developing their business acumen. Most of these people are coming from their specialty areas, whether in finance or marketing or sales or engineering or manufacturing or whatever function they're in. That's their focus. That, that's the, 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 their blinders are on. That's what they've grown up with. Yeah. To become a leader in the organization, they need to develop a better understanding of the overall business. And that's what I mean by business acumen. And then the third part are execution skills. Because a leader can have a great vision, but if they don't know how to turn that vision into actual plans and execute on those plans, the vision doesn't mean anything. So, so in this series of five to eight quarterly sessions, we bring them together for two or three days. We teach them one topic over that period of time. And then after, at the end of each session, we give them some action learning projects, and that's the second part of the model. Okay, we form them either into teams or give them individual assignments to go out and start applying what they've just learned. Okay, that's mm -hmm. what's helping them take this information and turn it into their personal knowledge. And then at the start of the next quarterly session, they have to report back on their action learning projects to a team or to a panel of company executives. So this also, besides educating the people, it also allows the company executives to get a view of this talent, okay, where their vision of a company executive is usually um, limited to one or two levels down in their own part of the organization. This gives the executives an opportunity to see talent from throughout the organization. That's great. Okay, the third piece of it, um, is the creation of individual development plans. And to do that, we start off by doing a 360 evaluation on each person. And the, the 360 assessment, not an evaluation. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that, that people, in talking about 360s, um, you know, I think get wrong is 360s aren't meant to be an evaluation of somebody. It's not a performance evaluation. It's really a, a, need, a personal needs assessment in terms of the skills that they need for the future to, go, yes. to grow into these larger leadership roles. And then based on that 360 assessment, the HR person assigned to the, to the, to the individual participant should sit down with that participant and with the participant's manager and put together an individual development plan. I, I, I like calling the 360 a personal needs assessment. That's, that's, that's great. That's a great way to describe that. Okay, well, uh, 
that's the way I view it. I mean, there are other people who will probably disagree with me, but that's the way I view it, at least in terms of this program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I agree. It should never be, uh, you know, used as a performance review tool. It's, it's very much a developmental piece um, in the process. Right. I, I like that kind of language and talking about it. That's, that's good. Okay, and then the fourth element is mentoring and coaching. Uh, if we can put together a mentoring program for the participants, all the better. We, you know, pairing them up with senior executives. And according to the, you know, whatever comes out of the individual development plan, there may be some topics on which we won't cover in the LDP, in the, in the five to eight sessions, but which this person, you know, needs some help on. So we may need to get them some coaching either internally or externally to help them develop, you know, whatever that, that area of development is. Mm-hmm. So those are the four components, the educational sessions, the action learning projects, the individual development plans, and then mentoring and coaching. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the educational um, sessions next, because uh, I noticed um, that in your book that you're really recommending, you know, people come together, physically come together in a, in a classroom kind of uh, setting. And, um, you know, it seems to, to me today that there's so much push towards virtual delivery. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're recommending, specifically recommending uh, classroom, and maybe you even have some examples that underscore, you know, why it's so important in a process like this? Sure. Um... The first time I ran one of these programs, we brought together 36 people from all over the world in this company. They were all mid-level managers who had been designated as having high potential for future leadership roles. Most of these people had heard of at least some of the other people, maybe had talked with them on the phone, maybe had corresponded with them by email. At the end of the three-day session, a lot of those people came up to us and said, you know, if there hadn't been an education component at all, it would have been worth the company's investment just to bring us together for three days. Okay? Just to start building those synergies, helping us to build, build our own networks throughout the company, you know, before we get up to the higher levels. Um... I, I'm also a believer that um, bringing people together for these kinds of discussions and dialogues uh, is an important, it's much richer when you do it in person. Mm-hmm. Now, we do encourage people in, let's say, doing their action learning projects to use all the tools that are available, you know, to use web conferencing, to use email, to use discussion groups that they can set up, you know, just for their own team uh, and to use all of those virtual tools because a team may have people from four different continents. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think that it's really important to have them together in the room. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think, uh, you know, for what you're talking about and, and the uh, the development of that personal network, if you're really 
if this really is a leadership development process and you're looking at succession planning, I think that's a key way to do it for sure. I'd like to talk a little bit about the faculty in this process in your leadership sure. development program. Um, I was, uh, I, you may or may not be aware, but uh, Ed Bedoff was my guest last month on Bookends, and we talked about his book, um, Leaders and Teachers. And, and I was really pleased to see uh, in your book that you were advocating that internal leaders would get involved in the leadership development process because, of course, um, you know, that's, that's what uh, his book is all about, and I can see that you're kindred spirits. Um, in your view, what is the value of the internal leader's involvement, and um, who else would you typically consider when you're choosing faculty for the leadership development program? Okay, well... One of the real purposes of, of the LDP is to make the candidates visible to the leadership of the company. And that's another reason for bringing them together uh, from, from your last question. Um, one of the ways that this can be done is by having company executives either teach, part, teach a session if they, if they feel capable of doing that, or the co-teacher session. You know, for example, uh, in one program, or in fact, in every program I've run, what we've done is we've brought in some kind of simulation to teach people, you know, essentially finance for non-financial managers. And we do that for a couple of days, but then on the third day, we bring in the chief financial officer, the CFO, Mm -hmm. to talk about, you know, what are the sources of revenue and what are the sources of expenses in our company, okay? Uh, in one company, uh, we had a new CEO and, and a, a relatively new um, CFO, and what they had started doing was holding quarterly calls, all-employee calls, right after the earnings were announced. Uh, to give the news to, to the employees of the company. And these two new people had started putting in uh, their presentations some statistics around the productivity within the company hmm. and how they compared to our main competitors and how they compared to other companies of our size in the industry, even if they weren't competitors. And nobody really understood what this all meant. Hmm. So they, you know, just puzzled expressions on people's faces when they presented these statistics. Well, at one of these sessions, the CFO came in after the simulation and said, you know, we've been presenting these, these statistics that nobody seems to understand. So I'm going to teach you where they come from, why they're important. And he went through how just out of the, the public financial statements of all these other companies, he was able to, to calculate these various kinds of statistics. And then the action learning project before the next session was that each person in the group, in the, in the LDP, was given another company to go back and develop these statistics uh, for the last three years from public sources. Hmm. and to compare them with our own. And the CFO was just thrilled to have this opportunity because now he had 
you know, three dozen or so highly respected mid-level managers who understood this stuff and could go back and explain it to other people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, that's not the only way that that executives can get involved. One of the things that, that uh, I do is that at every session, every education session, we invite one of the senior executives to come in one evening uh, for dinner. And after dinner, we ask them to get up and talk for 15 or 20 minutes uh, about their own leadership journey. And then open the floor to questions, any and all questions, and stay there until the, until there are no more questions. <laughs> well, in the first program I ever ran like this, as I said, we had a pretty new uh, CEO, and uh, he was so busy getting himself settled, he didn't show up at the first two sessions. And we finally got him to the third session. And after dinner, he you know, spent his 15 or 20 minutes talking about his own leadership journey, mm-hmm. and then he opened the floor to questions. So he started about 9 o'clock, and about 10.30, the, the dining room manager came in and said that, you know, we needed to vacate the room so they could clean up. So he said, well, you know, we're just getting started. We can go. <laughs> and we happened to be doing this at the university campus and uh, during the summer. And he said, well, there's a student pub next door. It's closed, but I'll have somebody open it up for you. Mm-hmm. So everybody moved into the pub. And, uh, you know, the CEO was buying beer for everybody. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, the person who was manning the pub said, you know, I really need to to, uh, shut down. And the CEO says, how much do you want for the keg? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And they were there till almost 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm. And the CEO never missed another session during the program. Well, just shows you, you know, the value and how hungry uh, people are for that opportunity for interchange, you know, with with people at the very top of the organization. I also really think, you know, that what you just shared there um, with regard to earlier, you know, in your in your model and your approach, one of the the key components is business acumen, and uh, the way that you are really weaving that in you know, not only to knowledge of the own organization and, you know, where revenue comes from, but really looking at the competitive environment um, in which that organization is part, the, the industry. I just I just think that's really powerful way to yeah. not just talk about it conceptually, but, you know, to just put it right there and, you know, this is it. This is our company. These are our competitors, you know, and it really, I think, makes – um, you know, day-to-day operations so much more meaningful for people when they get that. Right. Okay. Now, the other part of the question was, what other people do we use for faculty? It can be, you know, consultants. It can be business school faculty. Um, it can be training vendors, you know, who have a good program to offer. The important thing is to, you know, try and get the best resource you can for what you can afford. Um, And it has to be somebody who knows either your company or knows the industry. 
So let me give you an example. In one company, it made um, software for chemical engineering uh, process industries. And 70% of the professionals in the company were chemical engineers. Well, we wanted to do a session on uh, creativity and innovation. And there are any number of vendors who can come in and talk about that. But after doing, you know, a lot of research, I found a guy who offered a program on creativity and innovation who had been the, uh, the head of the Center for Innovation at one of the major chemical companies. And people were beside themselves because this guy was just so good and he knew what, what people were working on and he knew how to talk their language as opposed to somebody who just came in and you know, talked about uh, the Bono Six Thinking Hats. Right, right. Okay. Um, so we tried to find, in, in fact, in the book, there's a whole section on, you know, how to screen faculty. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you, um, especially in small and mid-sized companies, they'd love to get, you know, one of the big gurus to come in. Uh, but the big gurus, some of them get twenty, thirty thousand dollars a day yeah. to do programs, which most small companies cannot afford. So what I recommend in the book is to look at junior faculty at some of the better business schools, people who are exper- who know their stuff, and they wouldn't be teaching at this school, have experience teaching in the in the business schools executive education program but just haven't been around long enough to, you know, attain guru status yet. Right, yeah. And some of these people have been absolutely fantastic and, you know, cost a quarter to a third of what the gurus would cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, a real bargain and, um, and, and a win-win for, for everybody. Talking a little bit about the, you know, some of the specifics of the approaches that you use in in this process, uh, you talk about both experiential learning and action learning. You've already mentioned action learning a little bit, and I think we have a sense of that. But would you clarify for us just a little bit more um, how you're seeing the difference between experiential learning and action learning? Sure. Um, Experiential learning is really learning on the job. You know, I remember years ago, uh, I worked for a computer company, and there were controllers, finance controllers, uh, two guys who had been in their jobs for about 20 years. One had been in engineering, one had been in manufacturing. And, you know, they wanted this, they wanted when the CFO retired, you know, one of them to take this job. But their, their view of the company was limited to the function they'd been in. So what they did is they had them switch jobs for heck for six months. So the engineering guy went to work in the manufacturing organization and vice versa. That's experiential learning. Yeah. When you put somebody on a cross-functional task force, it's giving them exposure to other points of view and learning about other functions. That's experiential learning. When you ask somebody to fill in for a manager who's going out on sick leave for a few months, 
That's experiential learning. The action learning is tied to the education topics. The experiential learning can be done outside of the LDP, mm-hmm. but it can still be a very valuable uh, experience for people. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the action learning, and you described some examples earlier of some some possible kinds of projects. Um, uh, let's say that um, a, a, an action learning project is designed uh, to solve a particular problem within the organization, something that's that's been problematic but it's not been large enough that anybody's taken it on, and so now it's provided as a action learning assignment. But um, the the participants in the in the leadership development process um, take on this this project and they fail. Uh, how how does that work in the leadership development process, and how would you support them, you know, in in a, using that as a learning opportunity? Okay. Well, the fact that a project, an actual learning project, isn't successful, doesn't necessarily mean it's a failure. Mm-hmm. If if it's not successful, what did the people learn from it? That's the big question. What would they have done differently? And that's part of the debriefing. When when they present their results to the uh, panel of executives, if they come back and they say, you know, we just couldn't make this work, you know, the executives are going to start pressing them, well, why didn't it work? What got in your way? What would you do differently if you had to do it all over again? As long as people, you know, are learning something from it, it's not going to disqualify them from being, you know, a future leader of the company. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody is successful all the time. Yeah. Well, as, as the leadership development process gets going, and you've kind of alluded to this, um, you know, it really becomes a process to help you fine-tune uh, I, the identification process of these, you know, high potentials, particularly people that could be targeted for, um, you know, the leadership pipeline. Um, you you share an example of how two teams reported out on their action learning assignments that I thought was really powerful. Would you uh, be willing to share the story with us and, and how this really helped to uh, create that identification process? Okay, uh, it's a good story. Um, they've been given team assignments after one of the education sessions. And at the start of the next session, uh, the present, they had to make a presentation to the panel of executives. The first team had a very successful project, and when the team leader finished his presentation, he challenged the executives. He said, you know, now that we've done all of this hard work and shown that this can work, what are you going to do to make sure this doesn't die here? Uh To make sure that this gets implemented in other parts of the organization. Second team got up and they presented an equally successful project. And the team leader said at the end of his presentation, he said, you know, we believe so much in what we've done here that we've put together a guide for other people on how to do the same process. Mm -hmm. And we sent it out to managers in the company around the world 
with a note that says, here is, you know, a three-page guide. We think this might be a, a very valuable process for you to adopt. And if you have any questions or you need some help, here are the names, email addresses, and phone numbers of all the members of our team, and we'll be happy to help you. Amazing. And, well, and the question, you know, I posed in the book is, if you're on the panel of executives, which of these teams are you going to look at as having future leadership potential? The one who finished their project and said, okay, what are you going to do? Or the team that said, we, we have a great project, we think it has some value, we're going to spread it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we get more value on this. Yeah, I, I love that story, and, you know, it just illustrates again and again, you know, the, the value that's so hard to probably quantify uh, that comes out of a process like this, what you learn about people and their character. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk uh, for a little bit about mentoring. Um, you know, mentoring programs are fairly common in very large organizations, but not so much in small ones. Um, what benefits could organizations realize from a mentoring program, and can you tell us a little bit about the roles and the unique relationship that takes place in a mentoring uh, program? Yeah, I mean, mentoring, I don't know if you know the origin of, of uh the word mentor. No, I don't. Oh, okay. Uh, in in uh, Greek mythology, um, when Odysseus, the king, went off to fight in the Trojan War, he went to his best friend, whose name happened to be Mentor, and said, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to be gone in this war. I don't even know if I'll come back alive. While I'm gone, I want you to teach my young son how to be a king. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that was the role of mentor. Yeah, that's great. Okay? Mentoring is, is a unique relationship, and it's different from coaching. Coaching is, is, it has to be done by somebody who can observe somebody working on the job and then advise them on how to improve their job performance. A mentor is a senior executive who's assigned to a more junior person as a mentor who's there to um, help them learn about the culture, mm-hmm. you know, about the history. Is there to um, give them some career guidance and is usually high enough in the organization that the person can help with some of that career guidance. You know, the mentor is somebody who's high enough up saying, you know, they're putting together a, a cross-functional team to deal with, you know, this new campaign, and let me see if I can get you on that team. Yeah. So there's a mentor and there's a person who's called, sometimes it's called the mentee, M-E-N-T-E-E. Sometimes it's called the mentoring client. Uh, I remember when I wrote my first book, my publisher told me a story that when he was a, a junior editor at a large publishing house, that he was assigned the senior vice president of the publisher as a mentor, and they had lunch once a month for a year. 
Hmm. And he said that during those 12 lunches, he learned more about the publishing industry and about how things really worked within that publishing company than he could have in his own in 10 years. Yeah. Now, it's not a, 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 the type of a relationship is not something that people, um, you know, fall into by chance. Uh, I put together mentoring programs in, the, in a few companies where we do a half day of training for the mentors to talk about their roles. We do a half a day's training for the mentees to talk about their roles. But then the third thing we do, which I think is unique, is we do an hour to an hour and a half briefing for the managers of the mentees. Mm-hmm. Because they're the people who start getting nervous. Yeah. You know, they say, well, you know, if, if this senior vice president is the mentor to my person, who's he working for? Is he working for me? Is he working for that vice president? Mm-hmm. You know? Are they going to sit down and start second-guessing my decisions? You know, are they going to turn into gripe sessions of, of my employee griping about me to the, to the senior vice president? So I think it's important to, to make clear what the roles are to both the mentor and the mentee, but also to, to do something to make the, the managers of the mentees more comfortable with the relationship and with the program. Well, I'd like to talk about a, a, a similar but different kind of relationship that, of course, is part of the developmental process in many organizations, which is also which is the coaching um, um, opportunity. And you talk about a variety of coaching examples um, in the book, from formal outside coaches to actually the utilization of internal expertise, which I was uh, kind of interested in because, again, this this um, this was a, a different way for me uh, to think about coaching, and I, I really, I really liked it. Can you can you share how an organization might create a coaching culture so it could better capitalize on the knowledge that is within its own ranks? Um, which I would think, you know, would be a real opportunity to uh, leverage that internal talent and save the organization some money in hiring, you know, formal outside coaches today as well. Right. Right. Um, the it's a cultural thing, as you said, in creating a coaching culture. It has to start at the top. I mean, if, if the senior people are coaching the next level, then the next level we're going to see it's important. Uh, 10, 12 years ago, I got um, certified. I took a training program and got certified in a certain coaching program, and there are lots of them around. And it, it enabled me to uh, teach a two-day coaching workshop to employees and managers in the company. And one of the, I'm, I'm not going to say which one it is because I'm not, I'm not plugging anybody's coaching program. But one of the important things about this program is that during the two days of the program, uh, or before the program started, we asked people to come with a situation in which they could use some coaching. Mm -hmm. And during the two days, they coached each other. Mm -hmm. The participants coached each other and probably spent a third of the time during those two days 
doing coaching of each other. And the whole point of the approach was that if they came out of the workshop feeling they got some help mm-hmm. from being coached by others, they're more likely to offer coaching assistance to their own employees. That's great. So, yeah. you know, this, is, this was one way. I mean, in this one company of, of 1,500, 1,600 employees, I trained, I, I probably had 200 people all over the world participate in this program. You know, I gave it in, in Europe. I gave it across the U.S. at our major locations. I gave it in Singapore and Beijing as well. And it really made a difference. That's great. That's a, that's a, you know, the, the approach is uh, really uh, unique. Uh, some of the ideas that you had here around coaching, um, I really liked uh, your approach and uh, to it. And um, Dan, you know, we've talked a lot today, but we really have only scratched the surface of, of the wonderful information in your book. And before we conclude our time with you today, I was wondering if you could talk just a little about how you can support organizations who may want to tap into, you know, all of your wonderful knowledge and expertise. Could you tell us a little bit about what you can offer organizations and how you can support them? Sure. Um, I have a one-day seminar that I put together based on the book on how to put together your own uh, leadership development program. And it's aimed at, you know, companies in the 1,000 to 5,000 employee uh, range uh, that are trying to do this, you know, not on the cheap, but at a reasonable cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I can give that workshop in your company. I can also spend the second day working with, you know, the people you designate uh, during the first day with the seminar telling you about all of the options and the second day helping you um, work through which options you want to uh, use in your company and setting up your own program. Uh, I can also consult on an ongoing basis or coach your own people on things like topics uh, for the education sessions, uh, given a topic, what kinds of action learning projects could you assign to that. Um, I can help you find faculty uh, and resources from my own network um, and just be an ongoing resource. That's great. That's really wonderful. And, and Dan, which of the websites that we mentioned earlier would be the best uh, website for people to get a sense of some of these kinds of services and support that you provide? It, it's all on nextgenerationofleaders.com. Okay. Okay. Well, we want to thank you again for visiting with us today and sharing your knowledge. And I've learned a great deal from your work and have really appreciated the opportunity to interview you and spend this time with you. Uh, Following our interview today, I wanted to uh, remind folks that everyone is invited to join in this conversation on leadership by joining a group on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion, where you can pose questions for Dan, who will join us in this discussion group along with your colleagues and peers. Um, All of our Bookends podcasts can be found on iTunes and also at bookendsbookclub.net, 
where you can gather free resources and chapters uh, that our authors provide on our resource blog. So once again, we want to thank you, Dan Tobin, for being our, our guest today on Bookends. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure.